0: This morning we continue in the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to that passage. This is the story of what is traditionally called the rich young ruler. And as you're opening your Bibles, you may be wondering, or you might soon wonder, why exactly this story is about someone called the rich young ruler when Mark only says that he's rich. Uh, parallel passages, passage in Luke chapter 18, uh, calls this man a ruler. Matthew chapter 19 calls this man young. Um, so when you hear me say that this man is a, a rich, young ruler, um, you might wonder, well, where exactly is that in the text? And that's a great question to always be asking, um, always be checking those kind of things in the text, uh, but hopefully um, recognizing that these other parallel passages Um, give us a little bit more insight into what exactly this man was like, and that'll set you at ease. So uh, please follow along as I read aloud uh, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' And Jesus said to him, "'Why do you call me good?' "'No one is good except God alone.' And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In his book, The 10 Greatest Struggles of Your Life, uh, Pastor Colin Smith, tries to modernize this man to to give um, really flesh to him, and if we would see someone like this in uh, 2019 in our culture here in the United States. So picture this. This is a young man who was successful in virtually every sphere of life. When he was in high school, he was that person who was voted by his classmates most likely to succeed in life. Undoubtedly, he was the homecoming king because of his magnetic personality. He was genuinely interested in others, even those that weren't a part of his peer group. He showed interest in them. After high school, he attended a prestigious university, uh, and he attended there on a full scholarship, even though he didn't need the scholarship because his family was quite well off. And he graduated with uh, great honors, and uh, he, he, so did his soon-to-be wife. They married the summer after they graduated in this beautiful, picturesque wedding, because, of course, that was what would happen. And before uh, they, the, uh, after that, they moved to the regional metropolis where they both began their new jobs. He was, of course, the ideal employee. He was working hard. He was always someone who was a team player. He quickly rose through the ranks of his company. And by his early 30s, he has a six-figure income. He's already been tabbed as a future leader in the community as well as in their company. He and his wife have a beautiful and large home in the suburbs, but they don't keep it to themselves. Instead, they see it as an opportunity to entertain friends and family because that's something that they genuinely actually love doing. They love people. By his mid-30s, he has three young kids, the oldest of which is just starting school and is an absolute delight to all of the teachers. And he's not just thinking about right now, he's also thinking about the future as well. His family is well-disciplined in their use of their money. And they have plans that they will be able to pay off their mortgage in his 40s and perhaps even retire early in their late 50s. What's more, this man knows that life is more than just about the material things. It's more than just money. His parents growing up instilled in him values, and so he desires to also do the same thing for his family as well. Other young fathers around his same age look up to him with admiration because he genuinely cares and loves his wife. He loves his kids. He's active in his church community. He genuinely believes that there is a God. And more than that, he wants to make sure that he is ready for life after death. And so he commits, with fascinating success, to habitual disciplines. He attends church regularly, he prays, he gives to good causes, and more. But through it all, This young hero, because that's, of course, what this man certainly is, right? He's left with doubts. Am I doing enough? Have I got all of my bases covered? And if he's honest, these doubts have always been with him. But they've now taken root as he's established this more uh, regular rhythm of life. They've come to the forefront of his mind. And so he hears that Jesus is in town. And he's heard about this Jesus. And so he goes to Jesus and asks him this burning question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And I can just picture this man, this rich young ruler, waiting for Jesus' response. He's got his Michael Hyatt full focus planner out. He's ready to, to take notes. He's ready to set goals. He's ready to do whatever is necessary to set his soul at ease in order to earn eternal life. This is a man who has accomplished everything that he has set his mind to so far, and surely Jesus' commands that he is about to give him won't be any different, right? Well, two weeks ago, when we were last in the Gospel of Mark, I mentioned that this passage is closely related to what came before it, Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. Jesus says that anyone who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven must do so as a child. They must do so in full recognition of their helplessness. And this morning's passage builds on that, showing us in stark contrast, this one person who comes to Jesus with everything you could possibly want. But at the end of the story, he's left outside of the kingdom. And so as we approach this passage this morning, I just want us to do so with Jesus' words on discipleship from Mark chapter 8, fresh in our minds. This is still, Jesus is talking about discipleship. He's done it throughout chapter 9. Now he's, he's getting into chapter 10. He's talking about what it means to follow him as his disciple. And he says this. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's. Will save it. Can you note the connection here between this passage about the rich young ruler and Jesus' words on discipleship in Mark chapter 8? Here's a man who has gained the whole world, but he's in danger of losing his soul because he will not listen to Jesus' charge to follow me, in verse 21. So let's dive into this passage. We'll see what God is teaching us this morning. You may have noticed that this text is made up of three different conversations. First is a conversation between Jesus and this rich young man. Second is a conversation between Jesus and his disciples. Third one is between Jesus and Peter. And that's the the structure this morning. That's just what we're going to follow. We're going to focus on these three different conversations. But just a heads up, in case you get nervous, we're going to spend a whole lot of time on that first conversation, because it's the most important part of understanding what this passage is about. So, when we spend a significant amount of time on this first conversation, and then we get done, and you're like, "Oh no, we have two more, and they're going to be that same length." Don't don't worry, we're we're not going to go nearly as long on these second two, the the final two conversations here. So, uh, as we approach this uh, passage, let's let's uh, let's pray for God's help to be with us this morning. Lord, as I as I prepared this passage this week, I, I just confess that I've been intimately aware of my own need for the gospel. You've revealed to me through this text the the decay of my own heart. And so, Spirit, I ask that you would be at work this morning and that you would do the same to everyone here. That you would use this passage to reveal our incredible need for the gospel. We ask that you would do what you always do, that you would open the eyes of the blind, that you would raise the dead to life, that you would be the one who gives insight to the humble. Come and help us this morning, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So first conversation, Jesus and the rich young ruler, starting in verse 17. We're just going to work our way through this verse by verse. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now the text opens up and Jesus is about to set out on his journey, is the language here. If you remember the the larger section of Mark that we are in at this point, uh, this is a clear reference to Jerusalem. His journey is to Jerusalem. Jesus has got his mind set on the cross. He's, He's going to the cross, this only place where we can find eternal life. And this man runs up to him and asks him, where can I find eternal life? Now, there are many places in the Bible Jesus is approached by Jewish leaders and he's asked questions. Uh, Most of the time, it's disingenuous. They they have ulterior motives. They're traps. But I don't think that's the case here in this passage for a couple reasons. First, the text doesn't tell us that. Other places in the Bible, it will tell us that this is a trap. And second, more importantly, it seems to hint that this man is earnest. He's genuine in his desire to know Jesus' answer to this question. Just consider his actions here in this first verse. For a Jewish man of any status at all, like this young man was, running was considered to be undignified, something that I've taken to heart in my own life. Bowing down as well was something that was considered to be undignified. You would never go if you were a person of any status and means. You would never go and bow down before someone, and yet this man does both. It shows us that he's not concerned with social conventions as much as he is. He wants the answer to his question. Jesus' reputation precedes him, and he wants to hear what this authoritative teacher has to say on eternal life. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now Jesus answers here with a somewhat surprising rebuke at least surprising to me. The man has called Jesus a good teacher, and that's something that I think all of us would agree that Jesus is a good teacher. But Jesus reminds the man of the Old Testament, and it's teaching about true goodness. True goodness is found in God alone. Now, Jesus isn't rejecting this man's suggestion. He's not saying, hey, I'm not actually a good teacher. He's asking him, why have you called me good? What is your your motivation here? What is your reasoning for calling me good? Now, this man's view of goodness is, is clearly something that, that uh, is defined by, by horizontal categories. In fact, I think it's a, a view that, of goodness that many of us hold as well. It is a view that is defined by human achievement. Today, if someone is a good person, or if you would say, yeah, they're, they're a good person, it's something that's defined by how moral you are, or how considerate you are, or how nice you are toward others. That might be a helpful barometer in in determining who you spend time with, but it's it's totally inadequate for determining your salvation. You see, the rich young ruler undoubtedly saw himself as a good person because of his commitment to keeping the law, as we will soon see. And he saw Jesus in this same light. And so Jesus challenges that viewpoint, and, and maybe ours as well, of what goodness truly is. Jesus is hinting at what is to come. Goodness is not found in human achievement, but it's found in God alone. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Now to help tease out where this man stood, Jesus goes to the Ten Commandments. To answer this man's question, how do I inherit eternal life, or what must I do to inherit eternal life, he goes to the Ten Commandments, and specifically, the second half of the Ten Commandments. Jesus rightly points this man to the Word of God. He says, do you want to inherit eternal life? Then, then what does God's Word say? And we're going to look at the significance of what Jesus says, and specifically what Jesus doesn't say here in a few moments. But first, consider the man's response. And he said to him, Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now let's take this man at his word, because that's apparently what Jesus does, right? Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Doesn't, Jesus doesn't say, hey, no way. Come on. You, you clearly have total lie. Jesus doesn't say that. Elsewhere, Jesus points out that any time that we are even angry at someone, we've essentially committed murder in our hearts. He says that any time you look at someone else lustfully, that you've essentially committed adultery in your hearts. Jesus doesn't say that here. Jesus seems to to recognize that this man is earnest, that he is zealous, and he is doing his best to keep the law to a T. Yes, external uh, rules... uh, this, this idea of, of living a clean life is inadequate to keep the law. It's inadequate to address our own hearts. But Jesus doesn't go there, at least not yet, with this man. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. First, just notice that Jesus is filled with love for this man as he says these words. It's a powerful moment. This is actually the only place in the Gospel of Mark where it says Jesus loves someone. It's this rich young ruler. Jesus looks at this man who has spent his entire life trying to keep the law, trying to do what is right, and Jesus loves him. He says, that's not enough. Notice what Jesus does. He, he goes back to the Ten Commandments. Let's take a look again at verse 19 to see why. Now, even if you're not familiar with the Ten Commandments, you don't have them memorized, uh, you, you probably notice that there's not Ten Commandments themselves here. Uh, we, can, we can count that there's not Ten Commandments. So what commandments does he, he recite? Well, first he starts with the sixth commandment, do not murder. Then the seventh, do not commit adultery. Then the eighth, do not steal. Then the ninth, do not bear false witness. Then he says something that's not a commandment, not in the Ten Commandments, but it's the implication of the eighth and the ninth commandments for someone who is wealthy, this idea of not defrauding others. And then he closes with the fifth commandment, this commandment to honor your father and mother. Now here's the important question. What is missing? We have six, seven, eight, nine, five. So one through four are missing, and commandment 10 is missing as well. Why is this significant? Well, it's significant because Jesus is masterfully leading this man to see his own need for Jesus to be the one who saves him. This man comes to Jesus and says, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus points him to the answer. You're asking the wrong question. You don't do to inherit eternal life. As we saw two weeks ago, the kingdom of God isn't achieved by doing. It's something that you receive as a child, like a gift. Mark 10, verse 15 makes that clear. Now here's why Jesus leaves out the 10th commandment. We, I think many of us know what the 10th commandment is. It is the commandment not to covet, right? This is a commandment that is all about what's taking place in your heart. You, you can't, if you steal your neighbor's car, they're going to notice. But if you covet your neighbor's car, they're never going to notice. It's, it's something that's in your heart, it's not about external actions. And we've seen that this man is impeccable when it comes to what is external, but his love of wealth reveals that there is this decaying and ultimately this dead heart inside him. What's more, verses, or commandments 1 through 4 are, are commandments that focus on our relationship with God, not just on our relationship with others. And, and he may love others perfectly adequately, commandments 5 through 9, but his love of money reveals that his love for God is inadequate. It is lacking because he loves something else more than he loves God, and that is money. Now, you may uh, maybe you struggle with these verses, uh, verses 21 and 22, when Jesus says, okay, if you want to actually follow me, if you actually want to become a Christian, then you have to give away everything. I know before I was a Christian, I actually saw these verses as some evidence of why I could be skeptical toward Christians. Uh, why I could see them as hypocrites, because the Bible says Jesus tells people to give away everything. And I don't see any Christians who are really doing what the Bible says. Maybe you struggle with this passage, and and, and I'll, I'll be honest, as, as far as questions go, it's a decent question. Why don't we keep this commandment? I think uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the one who said this, I think. I think, um, it's it's a really important way of looking at this he he says not every christian is required to keep this commandment but every christian should wrestle with whether they are supposed to this is something that addresses things that are in our hearts what stands between us and god why is it that every christian why is it that Christians today why is it that Christians throughout the ages including Jesus's disciples those who were right there for the original conversation, why is it that they haven't followed this command? Well, it's because for this man, the greatest obstacle in his life, in the way of discipleship, in the way of following Jesus, for him to pick up his cross, for him to deny himself and follow Jesus, is his love for his money. And so Jesus says, you can't worship your money while also following me. Why does Jesus... Ask this man to give everything away. It's not because poverty is inherently better than being rich. No, there are poor people who who make an idol out of money just as easily as rich people can. the answer is given in his response. This man walks away sorrowful. It's a very important word here. Because as much as he longs for eternal life, he can't imagine life without his first love, his money. Uh, The word sorrowful here in verse 22, it's a rare word in the New Testament. And there's another place where it's used, it's in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it tells us that Jesus is very sorrowful as he is about to enter this time of prayer. And, And we can ask ourselves, based off of, the context of of Matthew 26. Why is Jesus sorrowful? It's because he knows the cross is before him. More specifically, he knows that judgment awaits him. The, The sins of the entire world will be placed on his shoulders and he will be separated from his Father, the one that he loves more than anything else in the world. He will be removed from him. And he is very sorrowful. I think that's helpful in understanding this man's sorrow as well why is he sorrowful it's not because the love of a father is going to be removed from him it's because his his love for money the most important thing in the world to him must be taken away if he is to follow jesus you see jesus's words here they go much deeper than doing they they get to this man's heart In verse 21, it's essentially like Jesus is saying something like this. My beloved friend, you are right. You have done an excellent job of keeping the law. You've done it earnestly. You've tried with all of your heart. You are earnest in your desire to keep God's commands, and that's nothing to dismiss lightly. That's, That's beautiful. But there's this thing That is keeping you from truly following me. You love something more than me. And if you are going to follow me, you should know I don't split allegiances. And so you're going to have to lay it down. I love you too much to share your heart with someone else or something else. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As much as I know it's going to hurt you, I want you to deny yourself. I want you to pick up your cross. But here's the thing. I have a special cross that I have designed just for you. And it is going to hurt you more than you could possibly imagine because it addresses the one area of your life where you are in the deepest rebellion against me. All of your wealth, all of your money, all of your possessions, I want you to get rid of them. Nail them to the cross because they stand in the way of you being able to follow me. And if you do that, then you're coming to me with nothing. And that's just how I like it. You are left with nothing except for me. And I'm more than enough. In fact, that's the only way to enter my kingdom. That's why Jesus asked this man to lay down all of his wealth. It's hard words, but they're crucial words, and they're words that we also today must hear for ourselves. And so before we continue, I just want to consider two implications of this first conversation. The first is uh, this question of idolatry. Because money was an idol, it was a false god for this other man. And so ask yourself, what idols compete with Christ in your life? What idols compete with Jesus in your life? What what have you exalted to this place of such importance in your life that it it has actually replaced Jesus as the center of your life? There's this book by Tim Keller, it's called Counterfeit Gods. And in it, he, he lays out some different ways to identify idols in our lives. Um, and one of the ways that we do that is just by considering a couple different areas of our lives. So there's four I want us to just look at here. The first one is your time. Not just your time generally, but your leisure time. The time that you have to yourself. When you get to set the agenda, what do you do with that time? Second is your imagination. Your imagination. When you are allowed to, to let your mind wander or you let your mind daydream, what thoughts occupy your mind? Another is your money. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And, and frankly, the, the opposite is true as well. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So follow your money. What do you spend your discretionary money on? And the fourth one is your emotions. What causes the most uncontrollable emotions in you, both good emotions and bad emotions? These things help us to identify the idols in our lives. Now, significantly, I read a statistic. Um, I don't. I don't know if this is true or not. I didn't do the research myself. But um, in the Bible. According to the statistic in the Bible, Jesus mentions the tempt for every one time, Jesus mentions the temptation of sex and, and lust uh, to, to lead us astray as to be an idol in our lives. He mentions the temptation of money ten times. This is something that we must take seriously in our lives. It would be the height of foolishness and our search for idols in our lives in, in response to this passage to at least not, to not even just stop and consider. If the idol of our heart is the exact same idol that this man has, could you be exactly like this man? Could you love money, possessions, things, status? Could you love these things too much? What idols in your life compete with Christ for your allegiance? Second implication from this first conversation, don't fool yourself Into bringing a resume to God. Don't fool yourself into bringing a resume to God. Notice this man, He, he deludes himself into thinking that he is able to merit something from God by his own morality. Now, he is well intentioned, he's almost certainly likable. He's someone that my heart goes out to, at least, and yet he is guilty of a flaw that's just as great as his idolatry of money. He's convinced himself of his ability to earn favor in God's eyes. It's seen at the very beginning of this passage, the very first verse, when he says, Good, teacher, this use of the word good. It's seen again in this confident assertion that he has kept all of these commandments. Here's a man who has severely overestimated his goodness and severely underestimated his own deadness. He He comes to Jesus not as a child, but as someone with a resume. And while I don't think anyone in this church would readily profess that we believe in works righteousness, that we can earn our way to God, it is easy for such a thought to creep into our hearts and into our attitudes each and every day if we do not remind ourselves of our need for the gospel. Now we could go on and on on this part of our text, but we've gone on long enough, but just I'll I'll be honest with you. I think one of the reasons why I spent so much time on this young man is because I see a whole lot of myself in him. I'm not rich. I'm not a ruler. I'm not talking about that. But the struggles that he faces are the struggles that I oftentimes see in my own life. I see this struggle with a love of money in my own heart. I, I, I see this struggle to, to want to bring a resume to God and say, hey, look what I've done. Look look how good I've been. And this Jesus just destroys this man's categories of what it means to follow him. And And I just think if I would have encountered Jesus 15 years ago, Jesus may not have said, hey, Jordan, you need to give up everything and follow me. But I know that whatever he would have asked me to do would have been just as devastating to me. And when I see this man, my heart breaks because he walks away. He walks out of the story. We never hear from him again. And as far as we know, he walks away from eternal life because he wasn't willing to kill an idol. May it not be so of us. Let's move on to our second conversation. As is often the case in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus speaks publicly with someone, and then he he explains things more fully to his disciples in private. Uh, Pick up in verse 23. Jesus looks around and, and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, the disciples are absolutely amazed at, at Jesus' words here because, that it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, because they live in this context that actually saw riches as a sign of, of one's blessing from God. And after all, if you look at the Old Testament, there's reason for that. Abraham is blessed beyond comprehension with wealth because of his obedience to God. The same is true with the other patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob, and you think of uh, the people of Israel like Joseph. In, in Egypt, they are blessed with a lot of abundant wealth because of their obedience to God. You think of David, you think of Solomon, others who are obedient to God, and God blesses them because of it. Job is another example of that. And, and yes, there's example or there's exceptions, but overall, there's this mindset in the first century that wealth is a sign that you are on the right track. That God has given you wealth as a blessing for your obedience. And Jesus points to something completely different. He says it's not even in a category. In fact, money is is this giant roadblock in the way of entering this kingdom. And that's why he uses this hyperbole of a camel in the eye of a needle. Now, contrary to what some may tell you, uh, there was not a gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye. Uh, I I shouldn't. I'm going to get on a soapbox here real quick. Um. we don't have time for that. Never mind. Uh, I I shouldn't complain. Um, There was not a gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye. This was a hyperbole. Jesus is referring to the largest animal in Palestine in that day, a camel over seven feet tall, weighed up to a ton. And he said, hey, you want to take that? I tried to get a camel here this morning. They wouldn't let me. It wasn't in the church budget. Try to take that and shove it into the eye of a needle. It's impossible And that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to to conjure up images of of things that are impossible for us to imagine. It's it's obvious based off of, of how ridiculous this image is. A camel is never going to enter the eye of a needle. And yet even as impossible as that scenario is, it's still more possible than a rich person entering the kingdom no wonder the disciples are shocked verse 26 and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him then who can be saved disciples had just seen jesus reject according to them one of the best candidates for the kingdom of god that you could ever come across this man who is externally righteous this man who has wealth and jesus says it's more likely for a camel to enter into the eye of a needle than for someone like that to enter the kingdom. No wonder, they say, then who can be saved? If the best of us can't be saved, then, then, then how can anyone be saved? And it's almost like there's this light bulb moment and Jesus is like, finally, you got it. You finally understand. We're getting somewhere. Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God all things are possible with God. I just imagine that Jesus has a smile on his face by the conclusion that his disciples have finally reached. Yes, my friends, it is impossible for the rich to save themselves. It is impossible for the poor to save themselves. It is impossible for those who are externally righteous to save themselves. It is impossible for those who are externally wicked to save themselves. Left up to man, no one can save themselves. But thank God, all things are possible with him. And that brings us to the third conversation of this text between Jesus and Peter. I imagine that Peter is a little nervous here when he asks this question of Jesus. He, he, Jesus uh, Peter has, has seen Jesus bring up these incredible demands that Jesus gives to this young man and, and the, the, the con- a, a contrasts the lives of the disciples with this young man. And it's almost like he's needing Jesus to assure him about his own salvation. And so he says, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or childrens or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus' words here to Peter are important for us because they remind us that whatever loss you may suffer for the kingdom, God will restore it more fully. Just think for a moment about the first century church, the church that Mark was originally written for. Now, it was a long time ago, but when we started in the Gospel of Mark, we talked about how Mark was written to the church in Rome. This is a church that was suffering at the hands of an unjust persecution in government. Many of them had been abandoned by their families because of their conversion to Christianity. Family heads would disown their spouses, they would disown their children because they had forsaken the gods of Rome to instead worship this Jesus of Nazareth. Many of them had lost their livelihoods. They couldn't earn a paycheck anymore because they no longer were able to go into the marketplace and sell because it was an act of worship to the gods of Rome. Some of them were even beginning to suffer actual persecution under people like Emperor Nero. Late 50s, early 60s, and the first century, he begins the first systematic persecutions of Christians in Rome. In fact, most scholars believe that that Mark was was written after Peter, the Apostle Peter, had been crucified for following Jesus. And it's in this context that I think Jesus' words of assurance are so important for us because God says, whatever you have lost, I will repay. Have you lost your family? You've gained more brothers and sisters in the church than you could ever fathom. Have you lost your wealth? Have you lost your possessions? You've acquired more treasure in heaven than you could understand. But also today, you belong to a community that because their family will take care of your every need. Have you even suffered persecution? God will not forget and he will give you eternal life. Jesus' words are, are extremely important for that first century in this assurance. But they're, they're important for us today as well. Now, I don't know what following you, or excuse me, following Jesus has cost you. Probably hasn't cost you your job. Probably hasn't cost you a form of physical persecution. Probably, well, it might have cost you some family or relationships. But whatever it has cost you, Jesus says that he will repay. And the reality is, it costs all of us a whole lot to die to ourselves. But Jesus says, whatever the cost, I will repay it. Beyond any way that you can fathom, the cost is great. But the cost is worth it. And Jesus assures Peter of what awaits those who have heeded the the words of Mark chapter 8 to pick up their cross and to deny themselves and to follow him. And so then, am I surprised as how this passage ends, verse 31? But but many who are first will be last and the last first. Now here's a question for you. Who is Jesus referring to here? Who is the first who will be last and who is the last who will be first? Uh, following the, the, the structure, the context of our passage, I think it, it, it becomes a little clearer. So a rich man comes to Jesus and he's trusting in his own wealth, he's trusting in his own righteousness, he's unwilling to give up those things to follow, and he goes away sad because Jesus says, you have to give it all up to follow me. And after he walks away, Jesus says that this is the case for anyone, that you have to give it all up in order to follow me. And his disciples say, hey, well, Jesus, look at us, we, we did we did give up everything. Look how much we have given up. Have we done enough? And Jesus, he, he assures them that yes, whatever they've, they've suffered loss of, he will repay. But then he ends with this saying, because I think the disciples are on the wrong track. They're tending toward works righteousness. They say, have we given up enough? And Jesus says, you're, you're asking the wrong question. You're asking the wrong question. The focus isn't on what you've done of what Christ has, has, has follow, uh, the, the question isn't about what following Christ has cost you. Instead, the focus is on, are you following Jesus? See, it's easy for us to lose focus in our Christian lives and begin to, to do uh, what the disciples are guilty of doing here, counting up our sacrifices, comparing our resumes with others, and saying, well, yeah, Jesus, that person over there, yeah, they did that, but, but look what I did. I I gave up my family, I gave up my land, I gave up my livelihood, and I've suffered for you. Is that enough? And a real command from Jesus here can be twisted by our hearts. And rather than driving us to the cross, it causes us to boast in our own ability, just like the disciples it's works righteousness, just like with the rich young ruler as well. And so Jesus says, stop keeping score. When it comes to my kingdom, the last will be first and the first will be last. What matters is not what the call of discipleship has cost you, but instead what matters is if you are following me like a little child. And so we come to the end of this passage. And if we're going to sum up this passage, I think it's, it's abundantly clear. It's the, the answer that Jesus gives to his disciples questions, who then can be saved? It's simply this. Salvation. All salvation takes a miracle of God. It is no less a miracle for God to save you than it is for him to save the most despicable person that you could ever imagine. The Bible tells us that all of us, apart from Christ, are dead dead. In our sins. And last time I checked, and I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, there aren't different degrees of deadness. All are dead, and it takes a miracle for any dead person to come to life. And that's exactly what salvation is. Salvation, all salvation takes a miracle of God. And so ask yourself, are you truly grateful for what God has done for you in Christ? As we Approach Thanksgiving, what a wonderful opportunity it is to remind ourselves of what we have to be most thankful for. Salvation is certainly one of them. That we were not any greater candidates to receive salvation, to be made alive than anyone else, but God took what was impossible for us and made it possible through the cross. But this doesn't just stop with with thanking God for our salvation, this passage also challenges us to put to death our own self-righteous tendencies, our own natural inclinations to trust ourselves rather than what Jesus has done for us. Jesus' words to the rich young ruler make it clear that these things are wholly inadequate to save us. We need someone to save us from ourselves. There's this uh, poem from, I actually read it this morning. I want to read it to you. It's this poem from, the, uh, from, from Britain, and I traced it back to Britain in the um, 1800s. It says this, "Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, standing in Him in Him alone, gloriously complete." And that's what Jesus asks for us is to lay down our doing, to stop asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life?" And this passage closes by asking us about where we place our hope of salvation. It challenges us to to address the idols of our hearts. It's a a challenging passage. It's an exposing passage, but here's the thing. Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. It's not too far to say, as Jesus is talking to this rich young ruler, he asks him to give everything up, The only reason Jesus says that to a rich young ruler is because Jesus is a rich young ruler who has given everything up. If you look at the testimony of scripture, 2 Corinthians 8 tells us this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. From eternity past, There is no one who has suffered any less want for anything than Jesus, the Creator. The wealth of the Creator is beyond comprehension, and yet Jesus gives it all up. Who is richer than the Lord Jesus? Jesus, from eternity past, has been the the ruling, reigning king of the entire universe, and yet he gives it up to become a human. He gives it all up. And then when he is a young man in his prime, he not only gives up his wealth, he not only gives up his role as the ruler of the cosmos, but then he gives himself up as a ransom for anyone who would be saved. You see, Jesus is the true rich young ruler. And though he calls us to lay down our lives, it's only because he did it that we might find ours in him. The cost of following Jesus is great, but it is incomprehensibly worth it. Let's pray. Jesus, we do ask this morning for the grace to follow you. Help us to identify in our hearts the idols that that keep us from truly belonging to you, of, of truly following you, of truly worshiping you. And Christ, we ask that you would give us the strength to lay those down that we might be found in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.